Today's reading is from the book of James, chapter 5, reading from verse 13 to the end, which is on page 1216 in the Church Bibles. James, chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you would teach us now. Help us to be ready to listen to your word and to put it into practice. Help us to understand it and know how it should shape and change our lives. Bless us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, the book of James has been a real challenge for us. Um, We've been working our way through it. We did so over the summer. There was a little break for a couple of weeks. Just to say where we're heading, we've got, this is the last Sunday in the book of James. Uh, Then next Sunday, we are uh, doing our, our termly go back to review of the verse for the year. So this will be our third and final sermon on the verse for the year in Isaiah 40. Um, And then we go on into this term, we've got a few slightly shorter sermon series, and you'll see that as we go along. But this week is the last Sunday in the book of James. And like I say, the book of James has been a real challenge. One of the themes through the book of James is that of uh, where James challenges the reader about being double-minded. That is a theme that we've seen run through the book. Being double-minded means, as we said at the beginning of the series, to be, as it were, with one foot on the land and one foot in a boat. It is to try to live for Jesus, but also trying to live like the rest of the world, to love Jesus and love the world. And James warns us that that is a dangerous way to be that we must not be like that. And he's challenged us in lots of different areas of life to say, are you living wholeheartedly for Jesus or not? In terms of the way you speak, the way we relate to one another, a whole load of different areas. And I think we have been challenged and uh, I think many of us have felt uncomfortable because there have been areas where we've thought, actually, I, I do live 
quite a lot like the way the world lives. And so James has given us the solution to this, which is not merely to try harder, but if you look back to chapter 4, verse 7, uh, just back one page, chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That is the solution. It is to humble ourselves before God, bring our sin to him and to know that through Christ we can be forgiven. Well, now as we come to the end of the letter, James then gives us instruction as to how to live as those wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. And as we come to this final passage, we're going to see two big headings, two big applications for us, uh, and they are these. Be Be a people of prayer and be a people who care. So first, be a people of prayer. Now there are some tricky points in this section, verses 13 to 18. Uh, There are some controversial bits where it it can be a little bit tricky. Uh, But the main application is quite clear. Because in every verse, James talks about prayer. And he begins with a call to pray in any circumstances. So verse 13. "Is Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. All of life is to be reflected upwards in prayer, like a bad tennis player where every ball is deflected upwards. So in life, everything that comes your way is to be deflected upwards in prayer. If it is trouble, James says, we are to pray taking all the difficulties, all the trials of life that come our way and knocking them upwards. It can be big troubles, relatively small ones, all are to be taken upwards. And can we remind one another to do this? Often after the service we'll uh, talk to one another over coffee and maybe someone will be opening up to you about some difficulty, some trouble in their life. Let's encourage one another. Say, will you pray about that? Because we can be very forgetful, can't we? When we're going through a difficult time, actually, sometimes someone will say, have you, have you prayed about that? And we go, oh, no, I haven't done that. It's just forgetfulness, isn't it, sometimes? And so we need to remind one another, will you pray about that difficulty? So James says, if you're in trouble, pray. He says, if you're happy, if it's anyone happy, pray. And that could be happiness about anything, can't it? Because James has reminded us at the beginning of the letter, towards the beginning of the letter, that every good and perfect gift is from above. So if you're happy about anything, pray to the Lord. Praise him. Sing songs of praise. I'm sure Phil and Teresa are singing songs of praise about their wedding anniversary, as they should be. And there will be other circumstances where we say, yeah, I want to praise God. I hope that there are times for you where maybe with others, maybe on your own, maybe you're self-conscious about your singing, but where you do sing songs of praise to God. 
So we are to pray. This is the first call in this. Be a people of prayer. Pray in every circumstance, not just at set times of prayer every day, though they're good, but at any time and anywhere to pray. Yeah, sometimes we make prayer more complicated than it needs to be, don't we? As if we, the only time to pray is at a particular time in a particular place, as if we need to book a slot with God, prepare, work on our opening statement, and yet God is not like that. He is with us, and we can pray to him at any time and in any place. We are always in his presence and can always talk to him. So, pray in all circumstances. Second... Paul, uh, James instructs his reader to call on the elders to pray. This is within a church context that uh, James is saying, look, there can be circumstances, there are circumstances where it's right to call on the leaders of the church to come and pray for you. Now, like I say, there are tricky bits in these verses, so we're going to tackle them asking just a few questions. First off, when should you call the leaders, the elders of the church, to pray for you? And the answer is, when you're ill. Verse 14, is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray. Now, it seems that the fact that the elders need to be called to pray and the fact that they pray over someone would suggest that this is particularly serious illnesses. So this isn't just a headache or a mild case of athlete's foot. Um, You call the elders when it's a serious illness. Uh, Who are to be called? Well, it's the elders, the leaders of the church. What are the elders to do? Again, verse 14, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, it's pretty clear what prayer is in that context, the elders, the leaders of the church to come and pray. But there's also this instruction to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. What's that about? Well, some suggest that this is sort of physical soothing, that by pouring oil, I I personally don't find, I don't think I would find that soothing. But back then, I think having oil poured on you was was a soothing thing. Um, And therefore, it might be about the physical, sort of physical soothing to have oil put on someone. Uh, Elsewhere in the New Testament, oil is used in that way. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, when the Samaritan, when Jesus tells the story, when the Samaritan comes across the man who's been beaten up, uh, it says he binds the person's wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And we would think... Why oil and wine is an, is an interesting combination. But obviously then the wine, uh, presumably alcohol, therefore antiseptic, and the oil um, in some ways soothing. So it may be that it's for physical soothing. Um, I have to say I'm not totally sure. Um, there, there is other significance of being anointed with oil in the Bible, and it may follow some of that, um, but I'm not totally sure. If I'm called on uh, with other leaders of the church to come and pray for someone who's ill, I, I'm of course happy to go and pray for them. I'm happy to put oil on. I'm not totally sure exactly the point of it, but I'm happy in obedience to this scripture to do so. Then what's the promise? What will happen? Verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. So what's being promised here? We need to be careful here because some have misused this verse. It's caused distress sometimes for people because people have read that and assumed that it must mean that if they call the elders, the leaders of the church, when they're seriously ill, uh, that when the leaders come and pray, that they will definitely be healed. And the difficulty is that in serious illness, 
when someone is in desperation, they can cling to that. And then if the Lord does not heal, they get very disappointed. They can get very upset with church leaders, saying, well, maybe you didn't pray in faith, or angry with God for not healing them. Now, we know it can't be that God is saying that every illness will be healed if we pray in the right way. It can't be that. For a start, uh, if that were the case, you'd expect there to be some Christians who are very, very old, wouldn't you? That they would never have got ill, or never stayed ill, and never died. You'd expect there to be some who would be seriously old. But actually, in the Bible also, although there are lots of incidents in the times of the apostles of people being healed, um, even then there are a couple of examples when the Lord did not heal. So a throwaway line in the book of 2 Timothy is that Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Miletus a place. So Paul left this guy sick in Miletus. Uh, and you would think, well, if that was the case, surely they should have just prayed in faith and the guy would have got better. But he was sick. And Paul himself had what he describes as a thorn in the flesh, which it seems is some physical, uh, physical problem, and maybe a medical problem, which he prayed for the Lord to take away, and the Lord didn't. The Lord said no. So it's not that every time someone is ill that they all, always are healed if the prayer is prayed in the right way. So what is this promising? After all, it says there, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Well, the books I've read, the commentaries I've read on this would, su- would suggest actually that prayer offered in faith maybe needs thinking about. What is that prayer offered in faith? Uh, the commentaries I've read on this, most view this not as being something that the elders kind of summon up, as if it's a prayer offered in faith, they've got to get to a certain level of faith. Like, like at a fairground, that game where you have a big mallet and you hit it and it does the thing up to the top and dings the bell at the top, as if the elders, when they come around to pray, have kind of got to work themselves up into a state of faith where they get to the level of, yeah, we can ding the bell, they do it, ding the bell, yes, we can heal the person. It's not that kind of thing of you've got to have the right kind of faith or pray it in the right way. No, they would say, actually, maybe the prayer offered in faith is because the leaders somehow know that it is the Lord's will to heal that person. It doesn't happen very often, one of the books suggests. This isn't a, a common occurrence, but on those rare occasions, the church leaders gather to pray, and the Lord somehow gives them a certainty that it is his purpose to heal that person, and so they pray accordingly. Now, something that might point us in that direction as being what that means by the the prayer offered in faith could be the example that then James gives a little later on. So in verse 17, he he, uh, gives the example of Elijah. Uh, And it's a very simple case there, isn't it? He says Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So that's a pretty simple example, isn't it? Elijah praying that there wouldn't be rain, there's no rain. Uh, Then he prays again, and there is rain. Now, when you read that, you sort of think, well, it, it looks like Elijah could have prayed anything. You know, he could have prayed... I don't know, but he could have prayed for that it would snow, or we could have prayed for, I mean, almost anything that he could have prayed for. It was up to him, but it wasn't. As you go back and read the chapters, and actually in one of our coming sermon series, we're going to be looking at Elijah. I'm looking forward to that one. 
but as you read through the chapters, what you see is, particularly when it comes to um, when he prays and then it rains again, God has already told him, I'm going to bring rain. And then he prays. And then the Lord brings rain. So it wasn't just random. It wasn't up to Elijah what, what he was going to pray. Actually, the, the Lord had told him, I'm going to bring rain. And maybe that maybe points us, therefore, in the direction of what this is. This prayer offered in faith is that those elders, those leaders, know that, yeah, this person, the Lord's will is that this person be healed. And therefore, they pray accordingly. Now, therefore, I, I would suggest... Um, Two things just to take from that little bit. Um, we must not go from that passage assuming that if we call for the church leaders to pray for you, uh, that you will definitely be healed. No, it's in the Lord's hands, isn't it? It's not our will, but his will be done. But also, we should go from this passage taking James's command seriously. Is any one of you ill? Seriously ill? Call on the elders. Call on the leaders of the church to come and pray. And the leaders may have a conviction that you will be healed miraculously, but they may not, in which case it has not been a waste of time. So you can do this. I think people can be reluctant to, or maybe don't realise it's a command to do, but we can call on the leaders of the church to come and pray. It doesn't have to be me, but it can be others in leadership in the church who can come and pray though I'm happy to do so as well. And James says uh, what else will happen, uh, that if the person has sinned, they will be forgiven. It may well be that in, the, in, the, in some cases, when a person is sick or calling for the church leaders, they become conscious of sin, and so bring to the Lord uh, their sin and are forgiven. Of course, all who bring their sin to the Lord are forgiven if they come in repentance and faith. So that's calling on the elders to pray. And third, pray for one another. He broadens it out, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, uh, to each other, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Uh, James expands this to a call to confess our sins to one another, which is a, a confessing sins done against a particular person. So he's, he's not saying, I think, that after the service you should go up to everyone in the church and say, look, here's my list of sins, this is what I've done wrong. He's not saying confess your sins in that kind of way. But if there is someone who you have offended, someone you have done something against, then you should confess to them, say sorry to them. And we know that in the, the church James is writing to, there was a lot that they needed to confess. They've described as, uh, as a church in which there are battles, uh, there are fights, there are quarrels. He even says, you kill. And we said when we looked at that bit that it probably wasn't they were actually going around killing one another. But they were so angry with one another that it, they had that in their hearts. Well, so they had a lot to confess to one another. He says that's what you're to do. And then to pray for one another. Here's the antidote to a church like that that James is writing to. Actually, it's to be a church where we confess sin to one another, we say sorry to one another, we need to be open to doing that, and where we pray for one another. So will we pray for each other? Will you use the prayer diary? prayer diary that comes out has a name each day of people in the church family to pray for. Or pray, and make sure you pray for your home group members. Do you make sure you pray for them systematically through the week, pray for others in your home group? Or you could use church suite. On there, there's the address list. Work your way through that. And pray for people. 
So there are three contexts James highlights for prayer. He says in every circumstance, he says to call the elders to pray and to pray for one another. And then he reminds them in verse 16, end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Anyone who's a Christian is righteous. Not because they're perfect, but because they're forgiven. And James's point is the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective, which we need to be reminded of because we feel prayer can be, well, weak and ineffective, like tackling a wildfire with a water pistol. We feel prayer just doesn't do anything at times, don't we? We pray for months, for weeks, for years for someone and feel like we're not getting anywhere. James says prayer is powerful and effective. Remember that. And so he goes to Elijah. I've already read those verses. We need that reminder, don't we, that prayer is powerful. A quote from John Chrysostom, born in 347 AD, who was Archbishop of Constantinople. Here's what he said. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions, hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the gates of heaven, assuaged diseases, repelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. And prayer is something you and I can do if we're trusting in Christ at any moment. You have a a weapon that is more powerful than any weapon of mass destruction simply by talking to the Lord. Will we do it? Will we be a people of prayer? I encourage you, come along to our prayer meeting on Wednesday evening. We've got our prayer focus then. If you can make it, come along. And when you come along, do you know how powerful it is? Oh, it won't look very powerful. Sometimes prayer meetings can feel hard work. That's true in every church. But they're powerful. Will you come along? This Wednesday, 8 o'clock here. So be, be a people of prayer. Secondly, be a people who care. James ends the letter urging Christians to look out for those who wander from the truth. Verse 19 and 20, have a look at it. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring back that person, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. We need to realise, don't we, there is great danger in wandering from the truth. We can wander from the truth, uh, both in what we believe and in our lifestyle. And the two very often go together. We can wander from the truth in what we believe, that is, in falling away from, from or twisting or rejecting truth. And we can wander from the truth in our lifestyle. And that's been the burden of the letter, hasn't it? Uh, That people who say they're Christians yet are living in ways that contradict that profession. James calls on Christians to look out for the wanderers. Not just for church leaders. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not just for church leaders, it's for all Christians. 
Now, I think one of the weaknesses of the church in our culture, and I think a possible weakness we have, is that we don't think that wandering from the truth is really very serious. Without realising it, I wonder whether we have taken on board uh, the thinking of the world around us that that has reshaped the idea of truth. Do you remember when um, Prince Harry and Meghan when they brought out their book and, you know, Netflix shows and that kind of thing, it was, it was said that this is Prince Harry's truth. It's his truth that he's expressing. And that way of thinking has it that, that truth, therefore, is entirely subjective. It's about your truth. And therefore, it's unchallengeable. Everyone has their own truth. And it's subjective. And this thinking, can, I think, has come into the church as well. Some talk with pride about the Church of England as being a broad church. And within a, a church, people will say, well, it's, it's good to have different views, different opinions. And of course, in some things, that is right, isn't it? It's good to have different, different churches with different ways of doing ministry, different ways of reaching out, that's right. And within a church, it's good to have different views, different opinions. How do we go about doing things? How should we go about doing the mission that we're doing? To have different views and to work on that together, of course, that's really good. But not when it comes to the truth. Truth, you see, matters. Not my truth or your truth, but the truth. And in becoming a Christian, that is described as coming to a knowledge of the truth. James has already said that the Christians became Christians when God gave them birth through the word of truth. Truth matters. It matters a huge amount. When it comes to the truth... It is not good to have everyone having their own views and differences on that. And previous generations knew this better than we do, which is why you've got the creeds that we do. There are three creeds, statements of of faith, of this is what Christians believe. There are three big ones, three main ones, that are held to as summaries of biblical truth. And those creeds came about because of controversies in, in the church, People at that point didn't then say, oh, well, it's good to have a broad view on these things, to have breadth. No, they said, no, let's pursue the truth. Let's discover what does it say in the Bible. And having worked on it, they then said, right, this is what we must believe. So at the start, one of the creeds is called the Athanasian Creed. I might have mentioned this before. The Athanasian Creed, we rarely, we've never said this creed in the church. Maybe we should. The reason why churches tend not to use it is because it's so long. It's a very long creed, but it's very good. I mean, it's brilliant. And this is how it starts. Don't know if you can read that. Let me read it out for you. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Now, Catholic there is not Roman Catholic. It's Catholic with a small c, so that means universal. Sort of, this is what all Christians should believe. It's not Roman Catholic, all right? So whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith. And then it outlines it and goes into wonderful detail about the Trinity. Maybe one Sunday we should say it as a church. 
It's a great creed. I'm not going to put it all up. But it's brilliant. But notice that. They are saying, actually, this matters. This is the truth. If you don't hold to it, you won't be saved. Truth matters. And therefore it matters when people wander from the truth. We must pursue truth. Just on that, before I get to the wandering, pursuing truth. We must pursue it in the Bible. I, as a minister, don't have monopoly on the truth. Uh, I can get it wrong. But we all have our Bibles and must pursue it, pursue truth in it. And I'm concerned that Christians today have a tendency to assume to assume that the Bible is not clear and therefore not really get into it, not really dig into it, to discover what is true and therefore revert to what they tend to think, their own views. Rather, we should distrust our own views and pursue the truth in the scriptures, examine it, to get to grips with it and submit to it. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And James explains what happens if you bring back a wanderer. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring back that person, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, we might say, well, I thought the Bible said that once I'm saved, I'm always saved, that Jesus holds on to me, and that is true. But don't forget that Jesus uses means to hold on to his people. He uses the warnings and instructions in his word as it is read and preached. And he uses the loving call of uh, calling back of fellow Christians. We need one another, and we need to love one another enough to be prepared to call back the wanderers. I said it before, this is a very loving congregation. It's a wonderful congregation to be a part of. And when it comes to practical support, there are many here who show incredible love in sacrificial ways. But we might be tempted to think that when it comes to belief and behavior, that's private. You know, mind your own business, that's up to me. And James says this is far too important If someone's wandering in what they believe or in their lifestyle, we need to love one another enough to call them back, to at least try. So here we finish the letter of James, a wonderfully practical and challenging letter. And as we've done several times over this series, I'm just going to finish asking if we would just have a moment of quiet and look back over the passage to think, what do you need to do? This is one of our challenges, isn't it, from the book of James, that we not be merely hearers of the word, but that we be doers of it. So you may have got your notes in front of you, the passage in front of you. Just take a moment. What do you need to change as a result of what you've read? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, please would you help us to be a people of prayer. Help us in all circumstances to pray. To be faithful and obedient to you in calling on the leaders of the church to pray uh, when we're ill. Uh, And Father, we, uh, we pray as well that you would help us to pray for one another. To be faithful in doing that. 
And Father, help us to call back the wanderers as well, to love one another enough to do that. Father, please bless us. Help us to put into practice what we have read today. Amen.